While they're making their way there, please make your way to the book of Galatians, chapter 5. Galatians, chapter 5. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 2 through 6. So, Galatians, chapter 5, verses 2 through 6. Well, with the weather warming up, I am looking forward to a number of things this summer, but one of those things is getting back out on the water in my kayak. Between Lake Michigan, the Sheboygan River, and even Green Bay to the north, we have got tons of opportunities for great kayaking here. I'm excited to take advantage of that. Now, uh, my kayak, I've had it for a long time. It's very stable, uh, especially in the sort of water that we have around here. But even so, every time I push off from the bank, I know that there's a small chance I might end up in the drink instead of on top of it. So, uh... I always ensure that I leave my keys, my phone, and my wallet either in the truck or I put them in a watertight box that I can store inside the boat. Now, more importantly, though, um, especially when I'm on bigger water, I always wear a life vest. Now, uh, federal regulations require boaters to, at minimum, have a life vest accessible when, to them when they are in the boat. Accidents happen. People turn over. And while a kayak, while kayaking can be a really tame sport, anything that you do on the water carries with it a certain amount of risk. Still, life jackets can be a big inconvenience. And I cannot tell you how many people I have passed out here on the Sheboygan River who have their life jackets strapped not to their bodies, but to their boat. <clears throat> I get it because life jackets aren't very fashionable. Uh, they can be hot. They can be cumbersome, and they make great seat cushions if yours is worn out. But we know that if your boat flips over, a life jacket that's not attached to you isn't going to be of much help, is it? Now, depending on the situation, you might have well had just left that on the bank when you pushed off. Having access to a life vest while the boat is upright is not the same thing as actually wearing one. And the only way a life vest can do you any good if you flip over is if you've actually got it on. In an emergency, it's only going to count if you're wearing it. In the same way that a life vest can only keep you afloat if you've got it on, so also the righteousness of Christ can only bring us hope if we are joined to him by faith. The gospel is an objective reality. It is something, it's a message of what Jesus has done for us. It is something that he has done for us on the cross. But his cross will only be of benefit to us if we are joined to him by faith. There's a great danger in presuming the benefits of Jesus' work if we are unwilling to listen to him, if we're unwilling to respond to him, and if we're unwilling to trust him. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, we are warned that accessibility to Jesus is not enough to save us. Jesus told the people who followed him, uh, who followed him around, who, who saw him work, people who ate and drank with him, people who entered houses with him and homes with him and spent time with him, and Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name 
and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. To their dismay, Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The will of God is that you would believe in the name of the Lord Jesus, that you would cease from striving after righteousness of your trying to secure it on your own power and that you would rest in the power of his work for you. Only those who are joined to Christ by faith receive the benefits of his work of freedom. Only those who live by faith in the spirit can expect to receive the hope of righteousness, which is eternal life. In Christ, the only thing that counts for anything is faith working through love. And that is the subject of our passage this morning. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word as we read it together. Once again, that's Galatians chapter 5. I'll be reading verses 2 through 6. This is the word of the Lord. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this passage is, it's a strong passage. It's as much a warning against presuming salvation on the basis of our own works as it is a set of instructions for how to live in the freedom that Jesus has secured for us. The features of true freedom, the the sort of freedom that Jesus secures for us are grace, faith, hope, righteousness and love and the wonderful thing about this passage is you find all five of those things in these verses smashed in together god has made your freedom a priority for his glory as we saw last week true freedom is not merely liberation true freedom is the the ability to live as god intended us to live under the rule and the reign of of christ Paul wrote these words to churches who were trapped, who were falling into the trap of a distortion of the gospel. Uh, They were being told that the only way they could be truly part of God's people, that the only way they could be saved, was if they committed themselves to keeping the commands of the Mosaic law. The false teachers who were troubling the church were twisting the law into something that it was never meant to do, and they were putting pressure on these churches to come under the law. In this passage, Paul lays out the seriousness of the matter in crystal clear terms. If the Galatians accept this distortion of the truth, if they abandon the gospel of grace and choose instead to live under the rule of the law according to the yoke of slavery and sin, Paul says they they will be severed from Christ, destined not for righteousness but for wrath. 
So this is a matter which cannot be ignored. It's an issue of eternal importance. And Paul uses some shocking language uh, in these five verses, which are meant to snap sleepy believers back into action. So the main point, the main idea of our passage this morning simply is this. Seek what counts. Seek what counts, which is the hope of righteousness that comes by faith. Now we have three points this morning. First, we want to look at the, um, at the consequences of those who sever themselves from Christ. Second, we want to look at the hope of righteousness. And third, we want to, we want to look at the thing that actually counts. So, so our three points this morning, if you've got uh, the sermon uh, note sheet or if you're keeping notes, our first point is the doom of those who are severed, the doom of those who are severed. Second, we see the hope of righteousness, the hope of righteousness. And finally, we see the thing that counts, the thing that actually counts. Well, Jesus came to set sinners free from their sin, from the demands of the law, and from the rule of death. As we saw last week in verse 1, Jesus makes believers free in the deepest sense, not just liberating us, but enabling us to live as a free people who are joined to him by the Spirit in faith. We read this last week. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And therefore, on the basis of his work, we understood, we understand, uh, based on what we studied last week, that the people of God are called to stand firm in the truth of the gospel, not submitting again to a yoke of slavery, a yoke of sin, a yoke of condemnation under the rule of the law. Now, the, the churches in Galatia who first received this letter were coming under immense pressure from false teachers who were using their influence and their supposed knowledge of the law to try to bring them under the yoke of the law, to to make them uh, think that understand that in order to be a part of the blessings that God had had made to the world, the promise of the blessing uh, that he had given to Abraham, that they had to keep the law in addition to faith. They did this for their own benefit in an effort to avoid being persecuted for the cross. That's what we read in Galatians 6, verse 12. These men were telling the Galatians that if they wanted to receive the benefits and the blessing of salvation, they had to earn that status. They They had to earn righteousness, and that the only way they could do that was by keeping the law and its demands. Now, things reach ahead here in verse 2 where Paul explains that we can live under only one master. Either we must live under the rule and the reign of Christ in the freedom that he has purchased for us, or we will live under the rule of the law and slave to sin because of the weakness of our fallen natures. There is no middle ground here. It is one or the other. In verse 2, Paul says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now talk about attention grabbing. Earlier in this letter, Paul actually had to give a defense of the authenticity and his authority as an apostle. And now we see him putting that full weight of that apostolic authority behind what he is saying. We've we've reached the moment in this letter of do or die. Either the Galatian churches will hear Paul's message and return to the grace that they had first received, or they will continue down a path away from the one who had called them to himself 
choosing instead to be mastered by the old guardianship of the law. Uh, The situation here is desperate. And so we see Paul is now pulling out all the stops. If this appeal does not shake the Galatian believers awake, it's difficult to imagine that anything will. Now, in full contrast to what these false teachers were saying, Paul tells the Galatians that if they accept circumcision, then the work of freedom which Jesus accomplished will not benefit them, will not profit them one bit. Now, this is something for Paul to say, considering that he himself was born as a Jew, that he he himself had received circumcision, and that for so much of his life, he was unmatched in his zeal for the commands of the law. What does Paul mean when he says that circumcision is so at odds with the work of Jesus? Well, there are a couple of things that we need uh, that need to be said here. First, we need to understand that when Paul refers to circumcision, he's not just talking about it as a rite or as a ceremony. We're meant to understand this a little more broadly as what that action represents. Circumcision may have been the act Paul has in mind, But he also is referring, he's using it to refer to the system behind it. More particularly, I think we have to understand, he's referring specifically to the distortion of the law and the gospel that these false teachers were trying to get the Galatians to accept. He's speaking about the way these men were misusing the law, misinterpreting it, and then trying to perpetuate the old age now in the age of where the gospel had come. They were misrepresenting the relationship of the Mosaic law to the new covenant which Christ had established through his own blood. The authority of the law as a guardian is an authority which prepared the way for Christ, which came uh, to an end when it was fulfilled in Christ, who is the offspring, when he had come. That's what we read in Galatians 3, verses 19 through 22. And Jesus came to set us free from the penalty of the law, If the Galatians received the message of these false teachers thinking that Jesus came merely to allow them to keep the law and to somehow through their own obedience earn their place in the blessings of that promise, that Paul wants the Galatians to know if they follow down that path, then then the true work of Jesus which set them free will be of no consequence, of no benefit to them. Now to this point, Paul has purposely kind of not said very much about circumcision itself. Uh, he mentions circumcision briefly, though it's not the focus of, his, of what he's saying back in chapter 2 when he refers to the circumcision party and when he refers to the way that the apostles in Jerusalem did not require Titus to be circumcised when he came to meet with them. Paul mentions circumcision here and now because this was one of the central issues of the distorted gospel which was being preached by these false teachers. It's not merely that these men wanted the Galatians to observe certain uh, cultural ideals or just to do certain things on certain seasons and months. No, they wanted the Galatians to be sold out living under the Mosaic law. Circumcision marked you as a member of the covenant of Abraham and then it became a a marker of your membership in the covenant which God made with Israel at Mount Sinai when he first led them out of Egypt. The law of Moses said that if a man was not circumcised then he was cut off from his people. That means he was cut off from Israel. However, 
Paul, in this letter, has demonstrated that now that Christ has come, the authority of the law is no longer over us. And now he is emphatically telling these Galatian believers not to receive circumcision because they've already been made members of the blessing of Abraham through their faith, not through, not through some physical action. They've been rescued. They've been redeemed by Christ. And therefore, they must not submit to this yoke of slavery. The issue here is not so much the way the law and the gospel of grace connect as it is the way these false teachers had misunderstood the work of Christ and the way that he came to rescue his people for freedom from it and from sin. The law, as we saw in Galatians 3.21, is not contrary to the promise God gave to Abraham. But the promise which he gave, this promise of righteousness, is not received through works of the law the way these false teachers were saying it was. We receive righteousness through faith in Christ, not by works accomplished by our own efforts. That is important for us to understand if we're going to make sense of what Paul means when he says, if you receive circumcision, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. He's saying, like, if, that, if this is only what he's saying, if it's only about circumcision, then only half the people in this room need to worry about it. And you could avoid that because by just not doing something. Paul is speaking about something much deeper here. Receiving circumcision, the way that Paul means here, is not merely the, act, the physical act of circumcision. Uh, rather, it is the whole part of what that represents. And we know that because of what he says in verse 6. Paul says, For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. It is irrelevant. Receiving circumcision, the way that Paul means here, is, is receiving it in a way that renders Jesus' work of no advantage to you because it means living according to the old age and the age of enslavement under the law. You can think about it this way. Imagine that you are a pilot flying a jet in a war zone. And as you're flying out your course, suddenly your plane is hit by a missile, and you are hit hard. Your plane is on fire. Uh, you're headed straight for the ground. No matter what you do, no matter how many buttons you press, no matter what your training has said to you, the controls are unresponsive. No matter how hard you work the pedals or pull back on the stick, nothing is working. You are doomed to crash. Now, as a standard issue, you are wearing a parachute for such an occasion. And in such a situation, you can choose to do one of two things. You can eject from the plane and rely on the parachute that you are wearing, or you can stay with the plane as it crashes to the ground, pulling against that stick with all your might, but still doomed to die. A parachute can't benefit you if you choose to stay on the plane. Imagine finding a plane wreck where the pilot was wearing a parachute, but chose not to eject. Did the parachute do him any good? No. It is of no advantage to anyone in that situation. The only way the parachute can benefit you in such a scenario is if you leave the plane and rely on its ability to bring you safely to the ground. The law had a purpose, but that purpose was fulfilled in the coming of Christ. If the Galatians received circumcision, 
if they chose to be under the yoke of the law rather than to receive the freedom of grace by faith in Christ, then it would be as if they were choosing to stay in the crashing plane even though that parachute was available to them. The law has no power to make any of us righteous any more than a burning plane has the power to keep us aloft. That's why Paul says that if the Galatians received circumcision, if they chose to be under the law rather than under Christ, then Christ and his salvation would be of no advantage to them. They're set only to crash and burn. The weakness of the law is stated for us very clearly in verse 3. Paul says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. This is something that we simply cannot do. We cannot fulfill the demands of the law. Our sinful nature, our flesh, as Paul likes to refer to it, has has made it so that we are incapable of measuring up to the law's standard. The law can't make us righteous. It can only proclaim that we are not. Israel thought that they could keep the law when they received it, even though Moses told them on the very slopes of Mount Sinai when they received it that they could not. Sacrifices were written into the law because God knew the weakness of human words and human intentions. He gave the law to prepare the way for how he was going to secure our righteousness through Jesus Christ. That righteousness is received by faith. It is not secured through our works. This is what led Paul to say in verse 4 to those who tried to earn God's favor that to be ruled uh, as righteous in the sight of the judge of all the earth. If you try to do that through your own fleshly efforts, he says, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. So to seek righteousness through the law is to be severed from Christ and to remain in a state of war against his throne. Now you have to catch the irony of what Paul is saying to those who who were willing to go under the knife to try and earn grace. You wish to be under the law? Your body is not the only thing that is going to be cut. You will be severed from Christ. You have fallen from the grace and the freedom which Christ purchased for you at his own expense. Uh, That is a shocking thing to read isn't it? Are we to understand that Paul is, as some argue, that Paul is saying that the men in Galatia had lost their, their salvation when they had been circumcised? Well, no, I don't think that's what Paul means. Because if that is the case, we have a very difficult time explaining why Paul had Timothy circumcised in Acts 16 verse 3. Uh, We can't make sense of verse 6 when he says that circumcision and uncircumcision don't count for anything. And we make salvation a matter of works, which is the whole idea which Paul is arguing against in this letter. And then when we oppose an idea on Paul's wording that does not account for the sense of the verbs in the original language, we find that to read it that way, as if Paul is saying you've lost your salvation, uh, is actually foreign to what he's saying. So what is he saying? Well, Paul is not so much describing what has happened to the Galatians as he is describing what will happen if they revert to the old yoke of the law, if they choose choose to try and get righteousness for themselves apart from total reliance on God's grace. So this is a warning of what will happen 
if they don't change their ways. And it's a warning that's meant to affect them. It's meant to bring the Galatians back into alignment with the freedom that Jesus has secured for them as his people. There is no middle way between the gospel of grace and the rule of law. One writer describes what Paul is saying here when he explains, Christ and grace are mutually exclusive here from the law and the flesh, so that the Galatians will either follow Christ and the gospel or accept circumcision and the law. Opposed to Christ and grace is the law and circumcision. Those who attempt to derive their justification from the law are severed from Christ and cut off from grace. For they are attempting to accomplish their own salvation instead of trusting in the grace and the mercy of Christ. We are not saved by our works. Christ's love is poured out on us even while we are still sinners. Dead hearts do not rise to praise him. Dead hearts do not conjure up faith to believe. As we discovered in verse 1, it is Christ who sets us free. It is God through the power of the Spirit who takes out our heart of stone and gives us hearts that are soft, which beat for Him, which live for Him, hearts of faith. Still, as we account for God's sovereignty in our salvation, we have to recognize that this is a real warning. Those of us who are, who, who are very confident in what we understand about the perseverance of the saints tend to read this and say, well, God has my salvation. This isn't for me. But this is for you. Because not only does God keep you and sustain you, and it, not only is he the guardian of your soul, but he uses means like this passage to shake you awake when you find yourself, the, the roots of your heart, spreading into something that is poisonous. And starting to believe and trust in your own righteousness rather than in the righteousness of Christ. This, is, this, this passage is sharp. And it needs to be. Because it functions like a set of shears that are cutting off roots that go to bad things and directing them towards the substance and the nutrients that we need in King Jesus. We all we need to recognize that there's a real seduction to trying to earn righteousness through our own works. We're inclined to believe that. We're inclined to receive grace and say, yes, amazing grace. God saved me while I was a sinner. But you know, we're good because of the way I live. That's really easy to slip into. To do so is not the way of grace. It is not the way of true sonship. It is the way of the flesh. It is the way of the law. It is the way that leads to estrangement from Christ or to resentment of him. It's the heart that views God as a cruel taskmaster, not as the loving father that he is. There is only one way to get the righteousness that we need. It is through faith in the work of Christ according to the Spirit of God as He works in us, in us to cause us to see our sin and to recognize that our only hope is in Him. We need passages like this to shake us awake on a regular basis because, like the Galatians, uh, we tend to trust in what we can do. We need to see... We need passages like this for really for two reasons. First, we need to be reminded to hold fast to Christ. Now, we don't know how many of the Galatian men had fallen prey to the arguments of these false teachers and done what they were saying they ought to do. 
We don't know how many of them had bought into this distortion of the truth. The concern of this letter was driven by more than just the removal of a piece of skin. The concern of this letter was to address a false teaching that was leading to apostasy, that was drawing men and women into a false confidence in their own ability, saying, no, no, stay in the plane. I think if you pull on that stick a little harder, you'll figure out how to fly. Well, I believe that the teachers teach, that the scriptures teach in perfect clarity that our salvation is a sure thing, that it is fixed in the work of God. The scriptures do not shy away from the fact that there will be those who profess faith, but who later renounce that faith or compromise that faith and fall away. There is always a capacity within us, because of the weakness of our flesh, to be led astray. It is not for no reason that Peter says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, metal, when it is exposed to high heat, will glow. It will even give off heat. And if it is buried in the coals of a blacksmith's forge, uh, it will blend in. But metal never produces a flame of its own. So take care, brothers and sisters, that you are not content merely to dwell in the presence of Christ, enjoying the warmth of being seen as a respectable Christian without a truly authentic faith. Is your confidence in your works or is your confidence in the work of your Lord? We must each carefully evaluate our hearts on a regular basis because the way that comes most natural to our fallen sensibilities is the way of works, not the way of faith. The second reason we need passages like this is because we need to see the end of those who experience a measure of the grace of Christ without ever truly being born again. In the parable of the four soils, Jesus describes how that as the gospel is spread out into the world, it is received by four different kinds of hearts. And you'll notice that of the four soils, only one soil bears any fruit. In some, it is choked out by the cares of this world. In others, it is removed before they even give it a second thought. And then in others, the cost of following Christ becomes too high and they fail. John warns us in 1 John 2, verses 18 through 20, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not all of us. In the past year, we have seen and witnessed a considerable number of people, especially younger, influential leaders, leaving the church and openly denying Christ. It's popular now for people to post the story of how they left the faith. And I suppose they're trying to lure anyone else and welcome anyone else out of the church with them. Whatever they think they have gained in this, Brothers and sisters, they have not chosen the better portion because there is one way of righteousness and there is one way of freedom, one hope, 
one faith in Christ. Which brings us to consider our second point, the hope of righteousness. The hope of righteousness which awaits those who are united to Christ by faith. Paul knew the attraction of trying to earn God's favor through your actions. He wanted the Galatian believers to have their eye on something better, something that actually has power to deliver. And so in verse 5, in contrast to those who have severed themselves from Christ by seeking to justify themselves through their own works, he says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. There are three things about this this statement in verse 5 I want you to notice. First of all, notice what Paul says that we're waiting on. Notice what he says we're waiting on. What does he say? The hope of righteousness. Now, as we await on the day when all of God's promises will, will be finally consummated, there's a sense in which we possess the righteousness Paul is speaking of now because of what Christ has done for us. That's what we, that's what we talked about last week when we considered the finished work of Jesus. Still, there's a future sense to this righteousness. And Paul says that we are eagerly waiting on the sure hope of this righteousness. Now, I take this to mean that Paul is referring here to the the glory of holiness that we will enjoy when we are finally and fully united to Christ in his presence. This is the inheritance of all who are in Christ because of what Christ has done for us. We see it and we experience it now, but only as a taste as through a mirror that is foggy, one day that inheritance will be ours fully and we will live the way we were meant to live, taking full possession of what Christ has secured for us, living as citizens of a kingdom and of a city where God is our king and every thought, every desire, every attitude, every action will be done with a purity and a holiness that is done according to the will of God. That is the hope of righteousness that waits for all those who are joined to Christ by faith. Now second, Paul says that we get this righteousness not through works of the law, but by faith. This is the big difference of the gospel of grace that which Paul preached and the gospel of works that was being preached to the churches in Galatia by these false teachers. One said that you had to add works to faith in order to receive this righteousness, while the other said that righteousness is a gift of God which has been secured by Christ and which is received by faith alone. Now, as a church, we confess that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Those, those three beautiful solas will guard our hearts. That is a fundamental conviction which is driven by statements like the one that Paul makes here in verse 5. The hope of righteousness is a hope of faith in the objective work of Jesus on our behalf. And it is a hope that delivers. The third thing we need to notice in this verse is how Paul credits this hope and this faith to the power of the Holy Spirit who is at work in us. This brings together everything that we've read in chapters 3 and 4 about the power of the Holy Spirit, about how he is involved in our lives, testifying to the power of this gospel of grace. The proclamation of the gospel of grace takes effect in people's lives because of the work of the Holy Spirit as he applies it to dead hearts. Remember back in Galatians 3, Paul reminded the Galatians that when they received the Spirit, they did so 
by hearing the gospel and receiving it by faith. There is an irrevocable connection between the Holy Spirit and the faith in Christ which ensures and assures us of the hope of righteousness which Jesus has secured for us. Paul goes here uh, because he wanted the Galatians to see the difference of what awaits those who are in Christ by faith and those who are still trying and striving to enter righteousness through the law. One leads to separation from God. The other, which is the gospel of grace, leads to a hope of eternal glory. I think that part of the appeal of a works-based salvation is that it really feeds our inner pride. It makes us feel good to know we do good things, doesn't it? Who doesn't like to be light? Who doesn't like to be well thought of? Now, when I was in elementary school, our principal had this system where if you got caught being nice or doing something good, he would give you this, it was called a Decandia dollar. That was his last name, Principal Decandia. He got a Decandia dollar, and it, was a, it had a dollar with, a, with his face on it. And then you took that dollar to the office, and you got to pick out of this giant treasure chest of totally useful, useless stuff. Um, I have, still have some of that stuff. Now, that promise did amazing things for improving kids' behavior. Uh, Even the kids that were known for acting out would do anything they could to get caught doing good. Uh, They would act totally different if they knew the principal was watching. They would find a way to open a door for somebody. They'd ask to carry things. They would lower their voice. But that system, although it improved actions in the school, did not do a single thing for the heart of any one of those kids. If I got a reward... I'll confess, this is confession time here. When I got a reward, it was something I had earned. And if I didn't get that, if I didn't get caught doing good, even when I had done the good, I resented the other kids who were caught doing good. Jesus has secured a freedom that goes down deeper than just our actions. His freedom is a freedom of the heart, which produces motivation change which affects everything we do not only what we do but why we do it we wait on a reward through the spirit which we receive by faith not on the merit of our own actions but on the merit of Christ and of his work for us this is a better reward far better than the temporary praise of men or the fading riches of this world this You can put a timeline on everything this world can offer you. 100 years. Maybe in the case of Miss Dorothy's aunt, a little bit longer than that. Every one of the riches this world can offer you will be gone in 100 to 150 years, period. This is a reward of righteousness and of holiness, something we have received in part but something which we will receive fully when we are gathered to Christ. This is a reward that is better than life itself. It is a reward of eternal life, supreme, not just in terms of duration, but in terms of its very experience. We ought to wait eagerly on this greater reward. And Jesus told his disciples not to perform outward works of righteousness so as to be seen by men, but to bring pleasure to our glorious heavenly Father. 
the gospel of grace calls us to eagerly wait on the fullness of freedom which Christ has secured for us. Faith promises a greater reward than our works can earn. And that brings us to consider our third point this morning, the thing that truly counts. This is the thing we ought to seek. Seek the thing that truly counts. Now, can you imagine reading this letter for the first time as one of the men who had bought into the lie that these false teachers were telling? Can you imagine reading these? Circumcision isn't something you can take back. It's done. And I imagine that such a man must have been shaken to the core to think about what he had done. If he wasn't, he only showed that what Paul said about him was true, that he indeed was severed from Christ because he was living under the rule of the law. I think verse 6 comes in the midst of this very strong word as a word of comfort to us. Because my life is marked with many blemishes and many stains of sin. It is marked with pride and many instances where I have trusted in my own reputation as a good person or even found myself judging others according to what I do. Whether you have grown up in the church or whether Christ saved you out of a hellish lifestyle, we all know that we are weak. I hope that even as you heard Paul's warning, your heart has been pricked this morning and convicted of the ways in which you have trusted in yourself. If so, Listen to these words. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Jew or Gentile, slave or free, man or woman, first century Christian and 21st century Christian, we are all one in Christ if we believe in him. There's a little saying I've heard mentioned in several different places. The first place I ever read it was in John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life. It goes like this. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Now, on the authority of what Paul says here in verse 6, I would add only this to that statement, that in Christ, the thing that counts is faith working through love. That is what counts. This is what is worthy of treasuring. This is what is worthy of dedicating your life to. And that there's something permanent about a gravestone. Granite and marble hold their shape and preserve the name of the person. But in the end, a gravestone can only preserve so much. If you want a life that counts, if you want a legacy that will last into eternity, then you need to go after what will last, after what will truly count. And Paul says that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything in Christ, but only faith working through love. You can see how that first part is important for the situation going on in Galatia and then how it relates to our own struggle uh, against, the, against falling into a workspace righteousness. This covers the whole spectrum of the church that was in Galatia. It was made up of men who were circumcised and uncircumcised, wasn't it? Whether they were circumcised or uncircumcised, the only thing that counts in Christ's judgment is faith working itself out in love by the power of the Spirit. We read in verse 5. In the ending of this letter, 
Paul tells the church that if anyone was caught in any transgression, any transgression, that the church should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. I expect that those men who had received circumcision, when they repented of how they had wavered and fallen into the lie, that that line was meant specifically for them. The good news is that Christ sees past our sins. He loves us in spite of the ways we fail. If we secure ourselves in other saviors, then we have no reason to expect that we'll hear God's commendation or that we'll be received into his presence as beloved children. But the sure hope of the gospel is that all who trust in Christ, who are united to him by faith, will in fact receive the reward which Christ has won for them through his work on the cross. The gospel of grace is bigger than your shortcomings. You will notice that the faith that Paul speaks of here isn't a stagnant statement. I believe. No, it's vibrant and it's alive. The thing that truly counts is a heart of faith working through love. Faith is more than just belief. It's more than mental assent. It's belief put into action. More specifically, it is belief that leads to the actions of love. In John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love, if you have love for one another. Love is the heart of the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, with everything that you are, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The love of faith is a love for God and it is a love for his people. It is not the self-love of a self-righteous heart. It is not the love that comes from a heart of pride. It is the love that comes from a heart that has been redeemed which is found in Christ by faith. Authentic faith isn't just about knowing true things or accomplishing certain tasks. It expresses itself in the daily life in that eager longing, looking forward to our eternal reward, which hopes in Christ and treasures him above all things. It is faith and love that works out of the grace that we have received. If you want to live a life that is truly worth something, that goes beyond the expiration date, then every action you must do must be driven by a desire to please Christ through faith in him as a response of what he has done to you, for you. Actions that are counted worthy by God are carried out in the power of the Spirit according to the faith we've received from a heart of love. And that is what truly counts. Let's pray. Father, we, we've, we thank you so much for the way that you have, even while we were sinners and while we were seeking uh, more ways in which we could rebel against you, caught and, and the, in the, under the rule of the flesh, that you loved us and that you saved us. And that you didn't just save us to set us free so that we could walk however we want to walk, but that you saved us and made us free and then gave us direction in how to live 
called us to live according to the example of Christ, by faith in him, knowing that our righteousness and our justification is found in his work for us, not in what we do. And I pray, Father, that you would give us each a heart of faith that is committed not only to just believing that these things are true, but is committed to living out the love of a vibrant heart that's been connected and joined to Christ by faith. Father, even as we pray this for ourselves, we want to pray this for those who have, who have maybe even heard the gospel but have not yet believed it. Father, you glorify Christ in setting sinners free from sin. And we pray that you would use our testimony to do that, that we would be faithful witnesses of what we have received and that we would eagerly look for and long for the, the reward that is ours in Christ, this righteousness that is eternal. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.